0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Samuel again this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to be reading from 2 Samuel 19, uh, verse 4, through to the end of the chapter. We did cross over into chapter 19 last week with the whole account of Absalom's uh, death and uh, David being rebuked by Joab uh, for mourning the loss of his son, Uh, and not taking his role as king seriously. And that took us through to the end uh, of verse 8. Verse 9 says, And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, and so they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shemai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Zeba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure." And Shemai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day came back. he came back in safety. And when He came to Jerusalem to meet the king. The king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. But he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Zeba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogelim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, "'Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem.'" But Barzillai said to the king, "'How many years have I still to live "'that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? "'I am this day 80 years old. "'Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? "'Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? "'Can I still listen to the voice "'of singing men and singing women? "'Why then should your servant be an added burden "'to my lord the king? "'Your servant will go a little way "'over the Jordan with the king. "'Why should the king repay me with such a reward?' Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, uh, and the king went over And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered, the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Well, this is God's word, and we have already prayed that God would help us to, to understand it and to apply it as we look at it this morning. When we started our series in two Samuel, a number of months ago, we entitled the series "The King Rises." Uh, As David emerged from the shadow uh, of King Saul in 1 Samuel to really take over the reign as God's anointed king of Israel in 2 Samuel. And the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel were mostly bright uh, as David established his rule over all of Judah and Israel and he set up Jerusalem as the capital city. Chapter seven was a highlight when God established his eternal covenant with David to grant an everlasting dynasty to the line of David. And then chapters eight to 10 were a record of of all of David's wonderful achievements as the king of Israel. But ever since chapter 11, with David's adultery, uh, with Bathsheba, and then his murder of Uriah, we have seen week after week really a story of the king declining. Declining morally, declining spiritually, declining politically, and even last week, declining emotionally. We reached a real low point last week with the murder of Absalom, and we consider David's failures, both a father and as a king. And in many respects, David's life and and reign will continue on this gradual decline as we move towards the end of 2 Samuel. And humanly speaking, we are left utterly disappointed in the man, David. A man who was once a man after God's own heart. A man who was once so brave and courageous to defend the honor of Yahweh and his people that he fought a giant A man who was once upon a time a man filled with such a a zeal and a a passion for the glory of God that he would play his harp and and write psalms and sing praises to God. And yet seems to be a man now who has fallen beyond the point of recovery. But thankfully the promises of God do not rely on on the ability or the performance of human beings to accomplish God's purposes. Thankfully, God's covenant with with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, God's covenant with David does not ultimately depend on human faithfulness, but on God's commitment to his own glory. And so as we come to chapter 19, we do see a faint glimmer of hope shining from the pages of this account. Hope that God has not forgotten his promises as David, once again, points us forward to what lies ahead for those who look beyond David to his future son, the eternal dynasty that God promised him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want us to consider chapter 19 under the title of Shadows of Mercy because in these verses we see David being a faint shadow, but a shadow nonetheless of Jesus as he treats various people in this account, including his enemies, with mercy. Now as Christians, there are two related words. They've come up in the songs we've sung this morning, they've come up in the readings already that we read this morning, which although are similar, are different, and it's the words grace. And mercy. We have a, a God of grace and mercy. The apostles often use those two words together in their greetings in the New Testament letters. Uh, and, and in Hebrews chapter four, we see them very closely linked together in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews four verse 14 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace in, uh, to help in time of need. So those two words, grace and mercy, grace, as we understand it from scripture, is unmerited favor. It's showering a person with blessing which they do not deserve. And so grace is a key element of our lives as Christians because we know that every good and perfect gift comes from the the Father of lights, comes to us from God in our salvation and in life. It's all grace. It's undeserved from God to us as sinners. Mercy on the other hand, although related is different, mercy is the withholding of punishment or judgment due to someone for the wrongs that they have committed. So let's summarize that, let me bring it up there. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve in terms of judgment, and grace is God giving us what we do not deserve in terms of blessing. In today's passage, we're going to mainly see, although there's some grace at the end, we're gonna mainly see David extending mercy to various people who deserved judgment, who deserved punishment. And David does not give them what they deserve for their rejection and their betrayal and even their outright rebellion against him as king. Instead, David shows them forgiveness and kindness and compassion. So as we consider David's actions in this chapter, I want us to keep in mind that these interactions are but a faint shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who ultimately is the God of mercy, in whom we find perfect, full mercy in our salvation and in his gift of eternal life. So in the first place today, we see that mercy appeals to the estranged. Mercy appeals to those who are cut off from us or estranged from us in verses 9 to 15. The scene shifts from where we were last week, the city of Mahanaim in Gilead, where David had reluctantly kind of responded to the rebuke of Joab, and he took up his position as king at the city gate after Absalom's death. Now we are told how the people of Israel, and it's clear later on that the the word Israel here is not referring to the whole nation, but to the 10 tribes in the north. How did the 10 tribes in the north respond to the news that Absalom is dead and David is now king? Well, we see that they quickly flip-flop to realign their loyalty back to David. Let's look at verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, that's in the north, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who then we anointed as king over us, he's now dead in battle. So now, therefore, what do you say about us bringing the king back? Now, there's nothing particularly commendable about their words in these verses. I think it's just quite simply pragmatic. David was our king, then he fled from Absalom, so we made Absalom our king. Now, Absalom is dead, so now we better get our loyalties back to David as our king. And so while this realignment of loyalty in the northern tribes of Israel was underway, and there was an impatience to bring David back as king, the two tribes in the south that's Judah and Benjamin, they are quiet. Now it's perhaps understandable that the tribe of Benjamin was quiet because that was the tribe from which the previous king, King Saul, he descended. And so perhaps they were hoping that with all the chaos in David's home, in David's kingdom, in his family, that the throne might move back to the tribe of Benjamin. So we can understand them not being too eager to welcome David back. But Judah, Judah was David's own tribe. They were, as he said in verse 12, you are my brothers, my bone, and my flesh. And so the silence of Judah in not calling for David to return back to Jerusalem as king, this is speaking volumes. Their silence was understood by David as rejection, as betrayal. Now, politically speaking, the smart move would have been for David to respond to the call of the 10 tribes of Israel in the north and to move up with them to reestablish his kingdom, uh, his, his uh, capital city in the north, and to establish his reign among the majority. And then he could simply force Judah and Benjamin into submission. Could have made them pay for their betrayal until eventually they came whimpering back for forgiveness But instead, we see that David appeals to his estranged brothers. Now that is mercy. That is mercy. And I love the way David does this. He appeals to the elders of Judah through the mediation of the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. Again, this is a a wonderful shadow that points us forward to, to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as we just read about in Hebrews 4. That Jesus is our high priest who mediates God's mercy to us as sinners and reconciliation between us and God. David appeals to the priest to mediate. And in mercy, David appeals then to his estranged brothers. These are the very ones who should have been most loyal to him. They should have loved him and welcomed him back. And yet, yea, they were the ones who had turned their backs on David and followed Absalom. And so he pleads with them, "Bring me back." He didn't need to do this. David was the rightful king of Israel. He knew it. He even says it in verse 22. "Don't I know that I'm not the king? I mean that I'm that I'm the king? But in mercy, he appeals to his estranged brothers to be reconciled. He shows them how serious he was about reconciliation by appointing Amasa who was the commander of Absalom's army, as the new commander of his army in place of Joab, because Joab had disobeyed the king's orders and had killed Absalom. Verse 14 tells us that David's act of mercy to Judah proved sufficient to sway the hearts of all the men of Judah as one. In other words, the whole nation of Judah was united And they sent word for David to return to Jerusalem as king. And verse 15 tells us that the people of Judah came to meet David at the Jordan and to bring him home to Jerusalem. So we can learn here from David that mercy appeals to the estranged. Notice even before or without them repenting and seeking forgiveness. Mercy takes the initiative towards reconciliation. Mercy does not demand first that they repent. Mercy does not require that they first jump through various hoops. Mercy takes the initiative and appeals to the estranged. Secondly, we see that mercy forgives the unfaithful. Now, the next shift in the scene is, is to a man called Shimai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. So he's from the tribe of Saul. And his name should ring a bell because we encountered him back in chapter 16 when Shane preached through that section. David was busy fleeing from Jerusalem uh, to get away from Absalom when he passed the town of Bahurim. And there was this man Shimei. He was a descendant of King Saul, and he came out and he cursed David and literally threw rocks at him. We're also told that Shimei at the time was accompanied by all the people and all the mighty men who joined in to support him in his cursing of David. That's back in chapter 16, verse five to eight. So now as David is crossing the Jordan, Back into Judah to be restored as king, we see the same scoundrel, Shammai, he rushes down to meet King David. Let's read again from verse 16. Shammai, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, so it's the same guy, no mistakes there, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet the king. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, probably the same thousand who had been with him previously when he cursed David. And Zeba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed over to bring the king's household and to do his pleasure. Verse 18, And Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the, the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord left, uh, the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore behold, I have come this day the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king. Now there are differences of opinion amongst the commentators as to the genuineness of Shimei's repentance in these verses. But the text doesn't tell us if his repentance was genuine or false. Was it Was it true heartfelt repentance or was it just pragmatic so that he wasn't killed as soon as David crossed over? And I'm so glad the text doesn't tell us what the motive of his heart was because that's not the point. The point is that in mercy, David forgives the unfaithful. It's as simple as that. David leaves the man's motives to God and he simply extends Forgiveness to a man who had been a terrible thorn in his side. This man Shimei had kicked David when he was down. He was a, a brazen-faced coward who cursed David while he was fleeing from his own son. And he even physically assaulted him with rocks. And yet here we see that David forgives him. He just forgives him. Now, come on, how is that possible? On a very human, practical level, how is it possible that David could take his repentance at face value and simply forgive him unconditionally? Please notice that David's mercy here to Shemai was not the expected response. Let's not romanticize how hard it is to forgive a person who has brutally attacked us with either words or rocks or both. Look at verse 21. Abishai, this is Joab's brother, one of David's most valiant bodyguards, he says to David, let me kill him because he cursed the Lord's anointed. So again, how is it possible that David could forgive such a traitor as Shimei? Well, he could do so because of how David viewed the sin of Shimei back in chapter 16. So please turn back in your Bibles. It's not gonna be up on the screen. Uh, please turn back in your Bibles to chapter 16, verse nine. It's crucial for us. We won't understand what David's doing unless we recall what happened in chapter 16, verse nine. Then Abishai, the same Abishai now who wants to kill him again, then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog, that Shammai, curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and chop off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Benjaminite, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust." And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. You can turn back to chapter 19. Do you see the wonderful parallel with our evening study in the life of Joseph? How Joseph was able to show his wicked, backstabbing, cursing brothers the same mercy of forgiveness. Joseph's mercy of forgiveness which we're going to see tonight in our final study, was motivated by the sovereign providence of God in Joseph's life, even over the evil, wicked attacks of his brother. Look at how the situation here with David and Shimei is almost a perfect mirror of the situation between Joseph and his brothers. Let me bring up a verse we're going to look at tonight. Joseph's Brothers came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants, just as Shemai did here. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is exactly the same attitude of David to Shimei in chapter 16. God is sovereign over his evil towards me. Who knows? God may even have sent him to curse me. But in the end, I am not in the place of God, says David. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says God. And so maybe the Lord will even reward me with good for his cursing today. That's up to God. You see, it's only when we see God's providence in our lives and especially God's providence over the sins which others have committed against us that we will be in the right place spiritually to extend forgiveness to them. Please look at the heart of David in rebuking Abishai in chapter 19 verse 22. Here Abishai was appealing again to go and chop off the head of Shimei for the second time. David's response in verse 22 is the exact opposite. I'm Reading from the NIV here. What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei. You shall not die. And the king even gave him an oath. He promised it with an oath. Your life is secure. David knew that he was the king of Israel, but that meant he was under God, and he would not usurp the role of God in the way that he treated Shimei. David not only knew that God was sovereign over Shimei's evil, but that God was also a God who showed him, who showed David so much mercy, so much grace in forgiving his sins against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against his people, against his family. If God had forgiven David so much, how on earth could David not also forgive Shammai? And so we see that as David understood God's mercy, towards his own unfaithfulness, so in mercy David was able to forgive the unfaithful Shemai. And so what this teaches us then is that if we do not extend the mercy of forgiveness to the unfaithful people in our lives, it reveals a proud and self-righteous heart which has not known or understood the mercy of God in forgiving us a multitude of sins. And it declares us to be those who have usurped the place of God in their lives. Then in the third place, we see that mercy restores the marginalized. And verses 24 to 30. Now the next person who appears before David for mercy is another familiar character I hope, Mephibosheth. This is the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. You'll recall from chapter nine that David searched out Mephibosheth in order to show him great kindness because of his love for and his covenant with Jonathan. David gave Mephibosheth all the land that previously belonged to King Saul. And he invited Mephibosheth to live in Jerusalem and to always eat at the king's table. Mephibosheth was paralyzed as a young boy when he, his nanny dropped him as she fled for her life. But we also encountered Mephibosheth again in chapter 16, the same chapter with Shemai. Uh, which sets the scene for what is about to happen in these verses. So let's go back again to chapter 16, uh, and let's look at verse 1 to 4. This is as David was fleeing Jerusalem, Absalom pursuing his dad to put him to death. We read in chapter 16, verse 1, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Zeba, the servant of Mephibosheth, Met him now. Just a context here. Ziba used to be Saul's servant, King Saul's servant, and so when David restored Mephibosheth, he placed Ziba under Mephibosheth to be his servant. So Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, meets David on the summit of the mountain, or just beyond, with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing two hundred loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Meaning for Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. So all the land of King Saul has now been taken from Mephibosheth and given to Zeba. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Okay, so that's the context. Now let's come back to chapter 19, verse 24. Chapter 19, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, David said to him, Mephibosheth, why did you not go with me? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant Zeba deceived me. For your servant said to him, I said to him, I'm going to saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. I couldn't walk. I needed a donkey. But he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were already doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? So now we discover that Zeba, the servant of Saul, who was now the servant of Mephibosheth, is a conniving snake. He was once the servant of the king. He had, by David's command, become the servant of now Saul's crippled grandson. And so as David flees from Jerusalem, Zeba takes the gap. To leave Mephibosheth behind and to go after David with the donkeys and the supplies to win his favor and to slander Mephibosheth with the crime of high treason. But as David sees Mephibosheth when he enters Jerusalem, he sees a man who has not washed his feet or trimmed his beard or washed his clothes for the months since David had fled Jerusalem. In other words, what is clearly understood from the context here is that he was not prepared to live in comfort in Jerusalem while his king was in exile. And so he identifies with David being in the wilderness in exile in his sufferings by not washing or trimming or enjoying any of the comforts of home life. Now David cannot reconcile what Ziba had told him with what he now sees. And so he asks Mephibosheth, who then explains what really happened, how he'd been left behind by Zeba and how he had been slandered to the king. So David, who had previously removed all of Mephibosheth's property, the property of Saul, and given it to lying Zeba, he now responds by restoring half of it back to Mephibosheth. Now why not all of it? Well, we're not told Maybe David was still grateful to Zeba because when he was fleeing Jerusalem, everyone abandoned him except Zeba. Zeba met him with donkeys and food and wine which would sustain him and his family and his soldiers for the long journey to the Jordan. Yeah, maybe there were political motives. Some commentators are a bit more skeptical. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And so <coughs> maybe, excuse me, David wanted them as his allies, who knows. But what we do see is that David restores Mephibosheth, one whom the society of the day had marginalized, had discarded, David restores Mephibosheth. And the true heart of Mephibosheth is seen in his response to the mercy that he now receives from David. In verse 30, when David restores half of the land back to Mephibosheth, Look at what he says. I don't care about the land. Zeba can have it all. My greatest joy is found in my king's safe return. What a challenge this is for our own motives to be restored to God. Do we really seek God's mercy in our lives just to get God just to know the blessing of his daily presence? Or are we hoping that if we ask God to forgive us, then we will get stuff from God? How many times when you've run out of money, or when you're needing to close that big deal at the office, or when you are desperate for some kind of breakthrough in your life, do you not suddenly come to the Lord in prayer and you confess all your sins before him in the hopes that in his forgiveness and mercy, you'll get the stuff that you wanted. Similarly, on a horizontal level, if we think about repentance, maybe it's children to parents, maybe it's husband to wife, maybe it's others we've sinned against in the workplace, do we really seek restoration with them as people in order to live at peace with all men? Or are we hoping that if we can just make superficial peace with them, well then, they'll put us back in the wool. They'll allow us back into bed. Or perhaps they'll put our name forward for promotion. In other words, they'll give us stuff. Now David's mercy in restoring property and possessions back to Mephibosheth, it's just a shadow which points us forward to Jesus who showers us with so many blessings that we don't deserve, that's true. But I think the response of Mephibosheth here is a real challenge, the challenge to our motivation of our hearts towards Jesus. Do we really crave the presence of the king in our lives as much as Mephibosheth did? Even if he doesn't restore our possessions or our Property or our health, is our greatest delight to eat again at the table of the king and to always be in his presence. And then finally today we see in the fourth place that mercy blesses the faithful uh, in the final scene. And I think maybe here uh, the lines between mercy and grace are are blurred uh, because here we see David's attitude to this old man called Barzillai, the Gileadite, who out of his great wealth had provided for David and his family and his men as they took refuge in the city of Mahanaim. This man accompanied David to the Jordan to see him safely across. And in response, David says to him, why don't you come back to Jerusalem with me so that I can provide for you and bless you in the royal city. Now on one level, David does not owe this man anything because he was simply doing what every citizen of Israel should have been willing to do for the king. But David desires to bless this man for his faithfulness in the face of so much faithlessness. But Barzillai declines the offer. He was already 80, um, lost his taste, lost his hearing, lost his sight. Um, He couldn't appreciate the royal life in Jerusalem. He just wants to go home and die with his family. But he asks David to bless Chimham. Most likely commentators think this was one of his sons. And David agrees to shower Chimham with the blessings of his father. Again, another wonderful pointer to the gospel. You and I are showered with the blessings that God pours onto Christ. Christ is the one who deserves all the blessings but Christ is the one who passes them on to us. And again, we see how David, yeah, is just a shadow of, restore, of pointing us to Jesus who restores his enemies and at the same time blesses those who are faithful. And we read these verses last week, but they help us again to see the mercy and grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, but God, this is Off the back of us being dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We're not sure if Chimham was one of Barzillai's sons, but if he was, and as I say, most commentators think that that was likely, he would have stood in line to inherit, if not all, at least some of his father's great wealth in the not too distant future. But he was obviously raised by Barzillai to have a far greater appreciation for the blessings of a relationship with the anointed king than to stay in Gilead and inherit great wealth. Maybe one of the reasons many children who've grown up in Christian homes, who've grown up in the context of the church, walk away from the faith as soon as they leave home is because we as parents have not taught them to value the presence of God in their lives more than the treasures of this world. What became of Chimham? Well, we're never told again except that he will be remembered for leaving his home and his family and most likely his inheritance to follow King David across the Jordan. But there is one passing reference in Jeremiah 41 verse 17. It's just a passing reference. You don't need to turn there. To a place called Girut Chimham near Bethlehem. Uh, one Bible dictionary says, Girut Chimham means the lodging place or the habitation of Chimham. The name may designate an inn for travelers near Bethlehem. Now we cannot be sure if it's related to this Chimham. He's the only Chimham in scripture. But if it is, it's a wonderful reminder of not only the blessing of a heritage which David gave to Chimham, a place for his lodging, but that, perhaps that that little inn Near Bethlehem would have been the first to hear of the news of the birth of King David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem 1,000 years later. Well, as we close and we consider these four shadows of mercy which point us to Jesus Christ, I think there are two simple points of application that I want to end with. Firstly, for us to consider afresh that we are the recipients of the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just look at those four points vertically first. While we were estranged, He appealed to us in love to be reconciled to Himself. While we were once and often still are unfaithful, He forgives us unconditionally. While we were marginalized of no real value or significance in this world, he restores us to himself as sons, and he showers us with blessings as we walk then in faithfulness to him. How this should make us love and appreciate Jesus all the more, and to live our lives in full commitment to him out of this deep gratitude for his mercy and grace. So if that's how things are vertically, then secondly, on a horizontal level, if we are those people who so appreciate Jesus for all that he has done for us, should we not equally be those who seek to represent Jesus by extending the same mercy to others who have sinned against us? To appeal to those who are estranged because of sins and hurts that they've committed against us in the past. Yes, they're in the wrong, but mercy appeals to them as Jesus appealed to us. To forgive those who have betrayed us and cursed us, maybe even thrown rocks at us. To seek to bring restoration to those who have been cast aside and ultimately to shower the blessing of God on those who are faithful to King Jesus. I think the application of this message is captured in the closing words of Jude, and with this I'll end. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for just a, a wonderful insight into the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know David was a miserable failure of a man as each one of us are. As Paul could say that he is the chief of sinners, so are we. And yet we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, and in Christ, there are these glimmers, these glimmers of of hope that point us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us as your people. As we ponder on that, Lord, every single one of us, I'm sure, has some degree of broken relationships in our lives won't you help us to be people of mercy, people who emulate the Lord Jesus Christ, not so much David, but emulate David's greatest son, Jesus, as we look to him for strength and wisdom to show the mercy of God and grace to others. May you be glorified and honored as we do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.